back. Socialized Recluse returns. Inactive no more. I'm Tyler, and Happy New Year and Happy Inauguration. Uh, we made it. Barely. But we made it. Um, so, yeah, so if you recognize this music, uh, you, no, you should. It's uh, Intersections from uh, my the, this show's first guest, my good friend Uziel Colon. And when I was putting this second episode together, I just couldn't imagine the show opening any other way. So I reached out to Uziel and boom, instant theme song. So yeah, here I am, uh, hopefully heading towards a bi-monthly release schedule with these because, yeah, I do want to get better at these, I, you know, I, but the only way to do that is by, you know, actually doing it and falling flat on my face and standing back up and falling flat on my face. So here I am falling flat on my face or standing flat on my face or whatever. All I know is I'm aiming for some kind of like middling competence. So yeah. But anyhow, episode two. Uh, this episode, I will be talking with Edgar and Seamus award-winning crime novelist Allison Galen, and we will be covering, oh, let's see, all sorts of things, uh, hits and runs and murder and social media and chainsaws and Leonard Cohen and Warren Beatty vomiting and, uh, let's see, character plot. And perhaps most importantly, we will be discussing cat video film festivals because they are a thing. I didn't know they were a thing, but they are a thing, and as such, we must talk about them. But, um, but the main point of us talking to them is we're going to be talking about some of her amazing work, and I, I've been a fan of Allison's work for a long time, and um, so we're going to be talking about her not latest works, uh, If I Die Tonight, Never Look Back, and her upcoming 12th novel, The Collective, which will be out uh, in, let's see, November from William Morrow. And uh, along the way, uh, my musical guest for this episode will be uh, Geiger von Muller, and with his uh, first revisit from his 2020 album, Ruby Red Run, which is just absolutely fantastic, and I can't wait to share it. So uh, here we are. If you'd like to say hi, you know, shout, scream, swear, whatever, my email is tww at parentheticalrecluse.com. And if you would like to hear earlier episodes of this show, you can find them at parentheticalrecluse.com slash pod. So, uh, yeah, without further rambling, uh, here's my interview with Allison. Um, but, oh, yeah, I, uh, two things, though. Uh, one, my dog barks quite a bit throughout this. So, you know, she was on patrol. It had to happen. And uh, if we do seem particularly overjoyed throughout all of this, we did record this two days after the inauguration. So, you know, there you go. It's nice to exhale again, isn't it? Yes, it really is. I, it's like I, for the first morning in a couple of mornings, uh, I woke up without a feeling of dread in the pit of my stomach. You know, it's yeah. like just a, what? How amazing that. It, it's weird. I feel like we're all probably kind of experiencing some post-traumatic stress and that it's still hard for us to believe that he's gone and it's right. over, and, you know? I, I was kind of thinking like, you know, it's I think it's going to take some time for people to get used to having a government that works again. Exactly. Just the idea of being able to sort of talk about books and movies and, yeah. you know, and, and like to be like mildly annoyed about governmental decisions, but not in fear for your life and your family's life. <laughs> right. We, we're, we're, like, no, we're no longer on the, you know, the the nuclear watch, you know, waking up. Did, exactly. Ha, ha, has the sky lit up yet? Oh, God. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I know. It's really true. It definitely, you know, it's take a little while to get used to, but um, I'm it's a wonderful thing to get used to just to have a functioning government and yeah. and the, the trust that hey you know we can maybe get through this pandemic did you see the press conference with dr fauci yeah he so looked I, like a different a new man a completely he, new man he did it was amazing <laughs> to see i i, I yeah I, I just saw on on twitter at some point somebody posted that 
you know, it, the picture of Fauci with Trump and then the picture of Fauci with Biden was before the divorce is final and after the divorce is final. Ah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> he was laughing and he was like, I'm very confident that by the fall we'll have some semblance of normalcy and all kinds of stuff that we never heard. We barely even heard him talk before, you know. And so, yeah, it was it was just it was nice to see like, hey, the science guy is actually being listened to and he's getting some space to sort of, you know, enact to help us. You know? Exactly. And what he said about, you know, saying, I, I don't remember the exact quote, but it was all like, um, you know, that if we don't know something, we can say we don't know. Exactly. Oh, yeah, that was wonderful. And we're going to be honest with you. And if we make a mistake, we're going to tell you that we made a mistake. And it's just like, really? That's so wonderful. It's what like, is this humanity we're seeing? Yeah, it's like it's suddenly we were sort of living in a in a in a, you know, a, a dictatorial, you know, regime. Yeah. for a little while there and without even knowing it it's sort of like that proverbial like the frog in the boiling water like we the temperature keeps getting turned up until mm-hmm. you're sitting there and it's boiling all around you and you're like wow well, this is okay <laughs> yeah. It, so yeah it ended with the bloviating chef carrying the boiling water and splashing it all over the place and all over us it, and everybody yes yeah exactly yeah. exactly so, so let's, um, in the absence of a better segue, let's uh, talk about hits and runs and murders and all of that good Jump. stuff. So, yeah, yeah, you we're, got it. Yeah, we're just, I, I'm, I'm all about dissonance, so we're just going to dive right into it. Uh, Great. So, like, first of all, I absolutely adored If I Die Tonight. It, it was. Oh, I'm so glad. It was, it was real. It was brilliant. But um, so I've always, at least for me, and I'm not sure if this is the case for you but i view writing or really i guess any sort of creative process or the act of creating something to be sort of an exorcism mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. yeah you're, you get possessed by this thing this little demon and you need to get it out um, yeah and i when i was reading if i die tonight the first it just felt like you you were get trying to get something out <laughs> and, and and I mean that in the best way humanly possible. And it, it was primal. It was visceral. So my question is, what haunted you that just wouldn't let go? Yeah. You know, the interesting thing is, is when I write all my books, it's because of an idea that I can't get out of my head. And with If I Die Tonight, um, the idea that I could get out of my head uh, was there, there actually was a hit and run. Uh, accident in Rhinebeck, which is a sort of neighboring area to mine. And um, at the time, my daughter was 13 years old, and um, she was friends with some of the kids who kind of knew the two two boys who were involved in this hit and run, two boys from rival, rival high schools. And um, she said to me, oh, I know I met the boy whose older brother is the one who was, you know, accused of the hit and run. And I just kept thinking, what would it be like to be that boy? And then what would it be like to be his mother, which was the thing I really couldn't get out of my head. And what was he thinking? And, you know, you, you do, you, you run somebody down and kill them at a young age like that and it changes your life forever and it changes the lives of everybody involved on either side and I just kept thinking of all those different lives that would be involved in something like that and that was the thing that sort of made it me it impossible for me not to write it I just kept thinking about it because it felt so close to home um, I, I always tr- or at least in my more recent books I've tried to write people that were reasonably normal (laughs) or you know kind of you know just like human beings you know fallible fallible human beings and um, people who make mistakes and whenever you make a mistake it makes whatever bad situation you're in worse and it's irrevocable and so it, it just it just sort of kept going that way so I think it was all it was those ideas it was the idea of being close to someone who had made such a monumental mistake um and possibly being the mother of that person and in that you sort of bear some part of the responsibility that was what kept me writing it and sort of wanting to see how it would turn out when we talked in oh my it was what 2011 20 when my first book came out you you, yes I I interviewed you for the book you Mm -hmm. had said that when you teamed up with Megan Abbott for it what it was Normandy Gold what became Normandy Gold 
Mm -hmm. um, that Megan was more of the character writer and you were more of the plot person and that's how you worked really well together. So mm -hmm. were you writing more for, uh, from a character uh, starting point on this one? Or, or when you're talking about getting more, you know, human, you know, with foibles and failings and all of that? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, I think character is, you know, one of the most important parts of writing. And since I wrote uh, Normandy Gold, uh, I'm trying to think of how many, I've written like three or four books since then. And I've mm -hmm. also, um, I teach uh, creative writing uh, on and off sometimes at the Center for Fiction. Um, I'll te I teach a class in uh, crime fiction writing. And the one thing I've really learned both through experience and sort of through reading about writing, et cetera, is that everything fuels plot. So everything, what you're doing is you're telling a story. Mm -hmm. So your characters have to fuel the plot. If you write a character, you can't force a character into a plot in which they don't belong. So it takes a certain kind of person to keep a secret that causes all the horrible things that happen and if I die tonight. So I had to create the, that type of character that would keep that secret. I, I had to create the type of mother who um, might not know her children as well as she would like to know her children and realize realizes that, you know? Mm -hmm. So it was definitely an exercise in writing characters, but everything for me always is sort of in service of the plot. I, I won't employ impose twists and turns on characters um, where they don't belong. Everything has to be earned, but um, but I also won't create a character just for nothing, for no reason other than, ooh, that's an interesting character to just come walking onto the canvas. And, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like, I, 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 I cut out a lot of that uh, in my revisions. I'll, I'll find things where I've just have pages of just getting in the mood and making character and stuff like that, that, that I thought were the most beautiful thing in the world when I was writing that. But when I'm reading it, I'm like, well, this is going nowhere. You know, this right. is just a description. So, um, so does that, I, I feel like, yeah, um, I've, I love, I do love writing characters, but, um, and I, and I, but it, it always comes down to plot and, and by plot, I don't mean action mm -hmm. or things happening. I mean, story telling a story. Okay. You, I mean, a lot of If I Die Tonight has to do with social media, and I, I loved how you, when I was reading it, I was like, this is, this is, uh, you know, the, the inserts of Facebook posts and stuff. It, <laughs> it was like, this is, this is if James Elroy was doing, you know, including Facebook posts in his Oh, that's so that's a nice compliment. Yeah. Thank you. I love James Elroy. Oh yeah, I, I, I'm still I'm still trying to get into his new quartet. I'm not quite there yet in terms of mm -hmm. loving it like I have the others. But um, oh yeah, the, the past ones. Oh my God, Black Dahlia is one of my all time favorites. Yeah, I actually but, just yeah. read that. Yeah, I I think I had started it years ago, and then I finally just re I actually read it through. And oh, mm -hmm. it's brilliant. And, yeah, it's just amazing. Um, yeah. Hang on, we got a barking dog, and okay. she, yeah, she may have been in our in your last answer, but oh well, who cares? This will. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, it's yeah. always good to have a barking dog. Yeah, we, it, it adds somewhere. the ambiance to everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I guess so. My question about all this, so is through writing, if I die tonight, and all you, you know, you dealt with in there, did it change your relationship with social media? Um, it, it made me look at social media with more of, I guess, a critical eye, just sort of realizing what, what had been there all along, you know, acknowledging my own addiction to social media mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and my, and my da daughters, like everything. It, it's like, it's funny because, um, you know, uh, people, you know, who are grownups and, and have kids, they love to say, oh, the kids are just obsessed with social media, but grownups are just as obsessed, if not more so. And, mm -hmm. you know, it made me look like just in terms of writing the Jackie and in, in if I die tonight, there's, you know, at the very beginning, she's scrolling through Facebook. I think that's the first thing you see of her, you know, and she's the mother, she's not the child. And she's looking at all these fabulously curated photos of her friends. And they're all, you know, all of her fellow middle aged friends taking pictures of themselves in the in the right light, you know, with a with a, the picture just held up just so and 
you know, kind of uh, making these wonderful meals, et cetera, and just these aspirational photos. And then, of course, um, the bullying on, that, that happens on social media, you know, comes into play. And um, the idea, one of the characters in If I Die Tonight, or Wade, the main character at one point, posts um, a, a nasty comment on just because just in the in the heat of the moment and that increases everyone's feeling that he must be guilty you know just because he's right. angry at one point and so it sort of captures like the best and the worst of you social media but it doesn't really capture the reality um, so I think I just it did help me to sort of look at it in a more discerning way it didn't make me any less sort of interested in it or it's funny I, I was giving a talk about if I died and I um, at a school at a community college and and uh, the professor was saying like how awful social media is and I'm like no you know there, uh, there's a lot about it I love I, I actually could I don't Think, I think my life would be a lot the poorer were it not for cat videos, for instance. I'm addicted to them. <laughs> they make me so happy. Um, I, I can agree with that. Videos. Yes. I mean, like how crazy with this, how awful with this very dark dystopian world we were living in for a little while there be were it not for those wonderful cat videos. So it, it, it also, you know, does allow you to some insight as to the world and what's going on in the world. And, and it enables you to connect with friends that you haven't seen since high school, which can be fun, can be awful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, I kind of take an attitude on that as I spent 12 years trying to get away from you. I don't need to be your yeah, friend on exactly. Facebook. There's no more goodbyes. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just interesting to me how much it permeates every part of our life. And if I die tonight is both about, you know, how it can make your own feelings of insecurity greater, but how it, how it can also make an angry mob form that all the all the quicker it, it's just yeah. so nuanced social media so yeah and so that's why i decided that to put in chapters and sections that were facebook posts or um there's text messages too and there's um instagram uh comments and tweets and it was i i did that very purposefully uh to make social media sort of another narrator almost like the greek chorus um, because i think yeah. that's what it is yeah it, it, it definitely had that effect in the book oh, and okay. it, it was neat to see you know the contrast between the surreality of social media and the reality of your characters mm -hmm. that were going on it, it, it was it was well done oh thank you um, yeah, I mean, I kind of, I have a love-hate relationship with social media. I've kind of come to view it as, it's sort of like if everybody was given a chainsaw without a manual and no discussion <laughs> as to whether or not they needed a chainsaw or should have a chainsaw. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, that's true. Um, you know, it, it, back to the, what you had talked about, about, you know, that in the beginning, of, it was all like, oh, it's just the kids using it and everything. I think... I, it, it was like right after the horrible 2016 election that it was, I think it was in, in Pew Research, they said that most of all of the misinformation and disinformation posted on Facebook was by 65 and older. Oh, I'm sure. Absolutely. I mean, you, I blocked the people that I blocked on Facebook because they posted things that just weren't true or offensive or what mm. I don't think any of them were friends of my kid you know I yeah. mean they were all grown-ups and they were tended to be older like senior citizens a lot of them you know because I think you have more time when you're um, retired and if you are tech savvy you know yeah um, I mean sometimes I don't know it's I, th I also think social media makes everybody just sort of forget and I I have only seen this Tell me if I'm pronouncing it wrong. Occam's razor, Awesome's razor. Um, the, I, the whole I, I want to say Occam's, but I, I'm probably Occam's? we're both probably wrong, or one of us probably. is right. Who knows? Well, it's one of those words like ersatz that you just see in yes. print. And, but uh, but you know the the idea that the simplest solution is probably the truest one. Mm -hmm. You know, it's more fun to sort of come up with 
weird conspiracy theories and then you see it in print and in a format that looks like it's from a real newspaper and that just fuels it and it's and it you know it becomes this sort of ooh i'm i know the truth and nobody else does kind of thing and yeah yeah it, it, the more time you have the more i i also think i mean i wrote this i wrote if i died tonight before the pandemic but the pandemic and social media oh, it made what it worse a, yeah deadly mixture that was right you know and and all the fake news that like real fake news not um, <laughs> not stuff that was claimed to be fake news but the you know disinformation that was spreading through you know whoever um it just would catch fire because everybody had so much more time and we're all in front of their screens and, so and there was a, a I, I can't remember if it was it was pew research or someone else again but they were talking about that a lot of the reason that this stuff gets permeated through and, you know, you don't get people saying, no, this is wrong, you know, mm -hmm. or it's, oh, my friend posted it. So, and they can't be wrong. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I've also seen different sides of friends that I never thought existed before. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. I, I've been, I, I was like, my God, they're fucking insane. What? Go. What's going on? So just get outside, go for a hike or something. I know we're all going a little stir crazy. Watch a cat on. video. <laughs> yes, watch a cat video, please. <laughs> Allison Galen can curate a really good set for you of cat. I know? would like, you know, right before the pandemic, um, my husband and I took a um, took a. a trip to um out into the country we we went to great barrington and lennox massachusetts and we and we went to williamstown and there was a little theater there and they had a cat video festival <laughs> just uh just you know our wonderful luck we got to go to the cat video festival in an actual movie theater it was possibly the last act time i it was definitely the last time i was in a movie theater before the pandemic started, it was February of 2020, and how much fun it was to just sit there and watch one after the other after the other cat videos on a big screen. <laughs> it was, it, it was it, fantastic. If it's if it's going to be the last thing you see in theaters before the apocalyptic plague comes, let it be cat, a cat video yes, film festival. Please let it be cat videos. I want to watch cats falling off of things and pushing things off of shelves and stuff like that. So. It, it sounds perfect to me. I, I'm, yeah. I'm in. So, um, all right. So from cat videos to never look back. <laughs> and chain people with chainsaws and whatever. So, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it really never look back really felt like you were examining some of the same themes as if I died mm -hmm. a night, but through mm -hmm. your background as a journalist. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, they, they, they really felt like two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So, I mean, is that fair or yeah. am i well it's interesting because um yeah if i die tonight is do you what know your child as well as you think you do and never look back is do you know your parent as well as you think you do um because it's about um a woman who is contacted by a podcaster um i'm also damn a big podcasters but yeah no that's awful they ruin everyone yeah else. they're awful um, but, <laughs> but she's contacted by a true crime uh, podcaster uh, who said who believes that her mother, her sweet mother, um, was actually one of the Inland Empire killers, which is a a, um, a true crime I invented in the '70s that was based on the Charles Starkweather murder, murders, where a teenage couple went around killing a bunch of people, and um, they're both thought to have died in the book. But in but um, this podcaster comes to believe through a series of clues that uh, the young girl actually escaped and uh, became the mother of this other woman who's a film um, commentator, online film commentator. Um, so, yeah, um, she 
really starts to believe that her mother may have been a, a mass murderer. And uh, and then another part of the book is told uh, through letter through letters that the young girl involved, April Cooper, involved in the Inland Empire murders, writes to her future child. It starts out as a school assignment, and it becomes a way of um, mentally uh, and emotionally coping uh, as she's on this murder spree. She's actually more of a kidnapped victim than she is a Bonnie and Clyde persona even though that's the way she's been kind of depicted so yeah it is it's it's they're both about being misunderstood and they're both about not knowing people as well as you think you do and um it's about that sort of uneasiness that comes from the fact that we never really truly know anyone even the people we love more than anyone in our lives and also the fact that your parents were, you know, living sentient adults with all sorts of secrets by the time they had you. And there right. are secrets and things you'll never know about them. You'll never fully know your parents. So that's so it's about that, too. So, yeah, I mean, they definitely see some relation there. Okay. Do you I know I'm a, I'm a fan of the I'm, I'm a fan of the big of the true crime resurgence in the streaming era. I know you are, too. Absolutely. Um but my question is, though, is what does that spell for crime fiction? You know, when when truth has to is stranger than fiction. I mean, mm -hmm. do you does it inspire you to up your game? Do, I mean, does it free you up in to try crazier things? Yes. Um, yeah, I think they're just I think they both can coexist really wonderfully together true crime and crime fiction because sort of like um reality and conspiracy theory um mm -hmm. true um the best true crime books are you know they're all about having a great structure and you know trying to sort of make uh as much sense out of a senseless act as you possibly can while still staying in the realm of reality same with uh, the podcasts is you know there's that they they structure them in a way that they make them suspenseful and they make them somewhat satisfying um in, in most of the stories um the killer is ultimately captured and 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 then you sort of find out about their backgrounds and and you find out about the backgrounds of the victims which is always really important the best true crimes treat the victims as real human beings rather than just focusing on the killers um but in but as far as crime fiction goes there's more um it's like like those conspiracy theories that are out there um you can have you can write crime in a way that is makes it make sense and makes and and twists and turns and you know you can put on it and um and you can make an ending that's far more satisfying and sort of karmic uh than than true crime turns out to be you know you can't you can't impose a different ending on true crime and you can't and you can only get to know um the victims so well you can't get under their skin or inside their heads i think if you I tend to like crime fiction that feels really real, like yeah. you're there. And it, that could be because I love true crime so much, but I want to believe that it's going on and that I'm in that world. All right. So it's time to take a little bit of a pause here and uh, share some music I, I particularly enjoy. And uh, so since I am <laughs> I'm clearly not a DJ, um, I'm just going to shut up and let the music speak for itself. So this is First Revisit from Geiger von Mahler's 2020 album, Ruby Red Run. I hope you enjoy.
That was Ruby Red Run by Geiger von... Oh, shit, that was... I'm sorry. That was First Revisit by Geiger von Muller from his 2020 album, Ruby Red Run. And if you'd like to seek out more of his music, which you really, really should, uh, you can find him on Bandcamp at geigervon.bandcamp.com. That's G-E-I-G-E-R-V-O-N.bandcamp.com. So uh, with that, let's go back to our interview with Allison. So let's uh, dredge up a little bit of uh, creative trauma here. Um, I'm going to ask you to do a reading of the most difficult passage you've had to write. And that can be either a, you know, a current work, can be another, uh, one from earlier. But anyhow, I, so just I, I'm going to ask you if you could just uh, introduce what you're going to read and then read it, and then we will uh, we'll go from there. Okay, uh, so what I've chosen to read is from my new book, and it's called The Collective, and it's coming out in um, November, I believe, of this year, uh, and it's about um, a woman whose daughter was uh, killed. She was died an unnatural death, um, and she can never forgive her daughter's murderer so she becomes involved with a group of women on the dark web who are all um what they seem to be doing is uh killing off the people who killed their children and who went unpunished for it and in in each of them contributing a little part to each murder hence the collective and hence they're getting away with it and hence it's very appealing to this woman who is just filled with rage uh her daughter emily was 15 years old five years ago and she went to a party at a fraternity house at a nearby college and she was probably uh she was raped by uh, a young a boy uh, in the fraternity and uh, left in the woods and suffered hypothermia and after three days in the hospital dies um, and told her mother that she was raped by this boy. Um, There's a trial. The boy is exonerated. It was consensual. They were both drunk, he says, and he goes on to live a happy life. And meanwhile, our woman, um, the main woman in the book, Camille, sort of has nothing in her life. Um, And so this is the first time she's been in Emily's room in more than a year. I turn the knob, push open Emily's door and switch the light on. The last time I was in here, it was daylight. And with the sun streaming in, the dust motes were so thick in the air, they looked like a solid path to the sky. I had dusted then, cleaned the whole room, but that was more than a year ago. I haven't been in since. In one of the support groups I tried going to following Emily's death, a lot of the parents spoke of their children's bedrooms how they'd close them off for years and turn them into time capsules, the teenage posters still on the wall, baby clothes hanging from puffy pink satin hangers, stuffed animals lined up on the bed, endlessly waiting for their owner's returns. You'd think I'd be one of those parents, a time capsule creator, but I'm not. Emily's room holds nothing of hers, nothing at all of anyone's save for the double mattress on a box spring at the center of the room. The last piece of furniture I bought for the house, if you can call a mattress furniture. I ordered it after Emily's death, but before the trial to replace the old one. A year ago, when I came into this room and dusted it, my goal had been to turn it into something else, a guest room, office space that would be wholly mine and memory free. I had all sorts of decor ideas. I bought potted plants, a mid-century floor lamp, and some framed pulp fiction covers I'd found at a yard sale. I planned to move my desk out of the bedroom and into this one, order some built-in, build-it-yourself bookshelves for the window-facing wall, maybe even paint the walls a new color, robin's egg blue, I was thinking, but I never even got as far as making the bed. Maybe I can put a few things in this room by the time Luke and Nora get here. A bouquet of flowers on one of my nightstands. The lamp I bought for it, which now resides in the living room downstairs. A little something to make it feel less like an interrogation chamber. I walk over to the closet, grab the packages of bedding to bring down to the wash. A sheet set, pillowcases, and a downfield comforter. All of it cream-colored, as neutral as it gets. 
Emily's comforter had been black, dotted with glow-in-the-dark stars and planets. She'd wanted to paint the walls black, too. Black suddenly became her favorite color when she turned 14, but Matt and I had said no, not now. You don't understand how small and sad the room will feel. I'm small and sad, so that works. She'd said it without a hint of a smile, yet I'd convinced myself she was just pulling my chain. It's her dark sense of humor. Forced to keep the walls the pale yellow of her childhood, Emily had covered them in posters of her favorite band, My Chemical Romance. The posters bore ghoulish illustrations, and from the little I heard of their gothic, melodramatic music, I didn't understand their appeal. How had she shifted loyalties from the adorable One Direction to these creeps in less than two years, I had wondered. But puberty is a powerful thing, and parents aren't supposed to understand what their teenagers listen to. That's how I'd reasoned it back then, and it still makes sense. A kid's music should be her own. I just wish Matt and I had give, hadn't given her the privacy that we did. I sit down on the bare mattress. After she died, Matt wanted to go the time capsule route. We don't need the room anyway, he said. We never have guests. But I protested. Told Matt he could and should move his office up there, even though the one he created in the basement was spacious, soundproofed, more suited to his telecommuting needs. Plus, he said he didn't want to clean out Emily's room. He thought getting, he thought getting rid of her things felt like another violation, and he didn't want to hurt her any more than she'd already been hurt. Just leave her be, he pleaded, his eyes glistening. Leave her be. But as consuming as his need may have been to keep that room the same, mine bordered on obsession, the need to clean it. So I went into the room myself, threw open the door early one morning while Matt was still snoring in our bed. Dusting was what I told myself I wanted to do, but before I knew it, I'd ripped all the My Chemical Romance posters off her walls and ceiling, and there was no turning back. I cleared the knickknacks off her desk, emptied her drawers and shelves into plastic garbage bags, her clothes, her books, her jewelry. The more I got rid of, the better I felt. And so I moved fast. I didn't think. I saved nothing. The whole time, I told myself I was doing something therapeutic. But deep down, I knew where this urge was coming from, why it trumped Matt's very valid feelings. I wanted to destroy evidence. Three weeks before Emily went to the frat party where she was killed, it was Matt and my 17th anniversary. We wanted to celebrate it in a special way, and so we spent the night at a lodge on Hunter Mountain. It was the first time we trusted Emily to be alone in the house overnight, and I'd been a little nervous about it. Fifteen is, after all, the most duplicitous age. But Emily assured me she'd be responsible, and she seemed to make good on her word, responding to our frequent texts, calling before bedtime, and in the morning, even texting us a picture of herself in the bedroom just before lights out. We'd come home to a neat house, our daughter assuring us she'd spent an uneventful night playing Sims, chatting with friends, and watching TV. See, Matt had said, she's a good kid. There was never anything to worry about. <laughs> I was worried, though, still. There was something a little too perfect about the way the house had looked upon our return, something evasive in the way Emily met my gaze. And a few days later, when she told me about the college boy she'd met at Bree's party, which had taken place a full week before our anniversary trip, her words felt hollow and rehearsed. His name is Harris, Mom. He's really nice. And I thought, why did you wait so long to tell me? I put it out of my mind, called myself suspicious and cynical, looking for lies when there were none to be found. If you would just relax and let her grow up, I told myself, you might be able to enjoy your own life. And then she went with him to that frat party. It was the Rolling Stone article that made me go into her room. All those lies Harris Blanchard told about how mature and worldly Emily had been. How she'd lied to him that she was 18, claimed to go to community college, told him she lived on her own in a mountain house she shared with a group of roommates. He said the sex was consensual, that she was drunk. Yes, they both were, but this was no innocent schoolgirl. She knew what she was doing. He said it wasn't the first time we'd been together. Matt never read the article. I have no desire, he said, to know what that prick has to say. He didn't even want to hear what was in it with the trial just weeks away. And the thing was, he had that luxury. Matt wasn't getting stares at his office because he worked out of his home. And as is the case with so many brainy people, make that brainy men. His co-workers were more interested in his skills, not his home life. Not me. I had to read that article and find out what we were up against. And after I did, I needed to see if any of it was true. Emily's phone had gotten lost that night in the woods, but I opened her laptop 
look through what few photos she kept on it, a few friends laughing, a dog, the sun setting over the Ashokan River, dresses she wanted to buy. Nothing worldly or mature, but still I bagged the laptop, along with her pajamas and bathing suits and school books, her YA novels and old teen magazines. There was no evidence here, nothing to back up anything Harris Blanchard had said in the article, but I still wanted to get rid of it all. I'm not sure why. Maybe I was afraid there were secret codes scratched into the school books or encrypted into the innocent-looking photos she took. Maybe the bathing suits and thong underwear would be judged as too revealing for a girl her age. Whatever it was, I just had this feeling that I couldn't trust my own instincts, and there was something I was missing, something she'd been hiding in plain sight, and I was too dense and self-absorbed to understand. I was best off getting rid of everything, and that's what I did. It took around two hours, Matt asleep the whole time. I got to the bed and folded up her starry black comforter, the matching sheets and pillowcases, and that's when I saw the mattress. By the time Matt woke up, I'd lugged everything outside and into the garbage bin behind the garage. The room was completely empty except for the dust. He asked me why I'd done it, and I couldn't explain. Couldn't tell him what was running through my mind or what I'd seen or why it was even important when all teenagers have secrets and a blood spot on a girl's mattress could mean any number of things. I told him I just wanted to give her some privacy. It was the truth. I lie back on the new mattress, the springs pressing into my spine. Joan once told me she thinks compartmentalizing gets a bad rap, especially when it comes to people like us who have been through something so traumatic, ignoring it for long periods of times can be a, a means of survival. When you've been through fire, you can't feel that burn every day, she explained. You have to go on with your life. As perceptive as she was about so many things, Joan thought she was teaching me something new, but the truth is I'm a pro at compartmentalizing. I've been doing it since Emily was alive, glossing up the cookie baking, keyboard playing, honor student part of her, and locking away the other parts, the ones that made her not just my sweet child, but a separate human being beyond my understanding. It took extra work to shut away that morning and never think of it again, but pro that I am, I managed to. On the ceiling, I can still see a few stubborn remnants of the double-sided sticky tape Emily used to put up her posters. They cling to the plaster like blisters, like scars. That was awesome. What was it about that one? What? It was a hard one to write. It was, it's, you know, it's a character-driven um, section. And also, it kind of brings... Um, a not incredibly sympathetic or likable aspect of my main character um, in interview. <laughs> and this is sort of a revelation that you find out uh, when you've been hearing that she's had no doubts of her daughter's complete innocence, you know? Right. Um, so it was, it was tough for me to write because I didn't want to write it in a way that felt sort of exploitative in any way, but I did want to make these real people, you know? So, um, so it was I Difficult. How did you get through it then? Was it just a matter of, you know, just sit down and get, you know, get over it and just push well, through or... What I, I push through a draft of it. This is what I usually do, okay. you know, and then I, I just get through it. And it's pretty, you know, it doesn't, it comes out very imperfect when I, when I, like, not great when I write right. these things. So what I did was I just sort of wrote through it and then went back over it and went back over it. And um, and then, you know, once I had a full draft, I went back over it again. And I, it was just one of those sections that I was like, mm, maybe that'll be one that just comes out when I, you know what I mean? Like I, I was saying that earlier, like some of these character sections just come out of the book anyway, but it was, right. it's important to, um, to my to sort of show who my main character is, uh, what her concerns are, you know, um, she's most people, you know, would, def or I would think that no matter what I found of my daughters, it was no, um, it would certainly be no uh, excuse or anything for her to have met the fate that she did, you know, right. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but she, you know, is, there's just so much there she's just so complicated in that way so it was it was sort of hard to to do it, it. yeah it was sort of writing with the blinders of a of the character on yeah exactly and okay. um and also the, the also the idea of not wanting to admit like 
why she had done what she did. So I, I, I did try to write it a little with a, in a, with a little bit of suspense in the scene as why had she done that? Why had she gotten rid of all of her daughter's stuff? And she doesn't even want to admit it to herself right away that it's because she's getting rid of evidence, but it was, you know, so, um, and, and what kind of evidence and why would that be evidence? What, you know, so, um, you know, what, what evidence of what, you know, um, of right. not telling your mother everything, you know? Um, so, yeah. So it just, it kind of, I wanted to write it in a way where the character herself might feel a little judgmental, but I didn't want to seem judgmental as a writer of the book. You wanted or, to be the, the, uh, oh, yeah. the neutral observer. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it was that was hard. So it was hard. Yeah. Did Did you, I mean, rely on some of your journalistic background in being that neutral observer when you were creating her writing the section? I, I mean, I think so. I think in terms of writing in everything, um, being a journalist has a lot to. It allows you to sort of look at everything for warts and all, you know, yeah. and you know, and and not wanting to. Um, write uh, a character or, or any character that's all that's not a real that's not real you know and yeah. and it's always like i think my kind of my mantra with i that i write with everything and that i know a lot of journalists have former or current journalists have that same mantra which is keep it real you right. know mm -hmm. so yeah i definitely think that it does help in terms of like uh, you know if somebody says boy i hated your character I, I'm never really offended by that because they, they're a human being. People are going to like you. They're going to hate you. You know, I don't know. To me, the, the thing that the one thing that makes a character unlikable to me is is for them to be too perfect. You oh, know, yeah, like yeah. that. I think I think flaws are actually what makes a character likable because that's what makes them relatable. But I know not everybody feels that way. You know, I had letters from people like over if I die tonight because, you know, there's Pearl, who's a police officer. She's one. of I think she's one of the most likable characters. Yeah, I've she's ever awesome. Written. Right. But people were like, you know, I can't believe you had she she, you know, doesn't she's not interested in having, you know, a she, she's just interested in fulfilling her needs as far as her sex life goes and so she goes on to you know hookup sites and hooks up with guys and turns out she meets a really nice guy from hooking up with him but mm -hmm. she's you know i guess some might say promiscuous you know but that's just and people were just thought that instantly made her unlikable why would a cop do that they said i'm like are you are you kidding me <laughs> to me that's, that says a whole lot more about the people writing the letters than it does about the character so yeah i mean i i, I feel like that's just something that expresses like sort of what she feels that her needs are worth and that doesn't i don't know why that would make her unlikable you know so it's just funny to me so anyway yeah i mean it's amazing mm. what people are threatened by yeah exactly or right or somebody swearing you know yeah. that's the that's a big thing with readers like how could they swear you know okay well i mean i i find it annoying when every other word out of a character's mouth is a swear word because I, I think that's kind of lazy like they, you know that just just a lazy way to make them seem tough but everybody swears from time to time or even if they don't it's like that's no reason to actually really to dislike it you know so uh, yeah. yeah so what i don't like is the perfect characters that are just perfect they look perfect all the time they act perfect they you couldn't imagine them like ever you know like but, breaking a sweat but you your, your job though that. if you if you have a perfect character your job is to pull the onion skin all the way back and reveal all the n nasty dirt underneath them, yes right? oh those are the most fascinating characters yeah, the ones exactly. that seem perfect but are far from it absolutely hmm. yeah i love those kind of characters i love reading those characters so let's i i do want to talk briefly about journalism but not you know it, it not in terms of more in terms of actually doing the the writing and what i'm i'm curious about is do you have to have separate processes for writing a novel versus writing being a you know a journal i mean do 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 you kind of compartmentalize them yes okay definitely yeah i think it's a totally different part of the yeah. brain i think I mean, when I never had writer's block ever writing an article, you know, mm -hmm. writing something journalistic. It's I find it, you know, 
much more formulaic, you know, and it just comes out. But writing a, a, a book, it's like you just that much more freedom mm-hmm. um, when you're not writing, like when you're not, you don't have a sp- very specific amount of words that you need to write in order to fill some text blocks. Um, that's the, the lack of restriction is somewhat intimidating. And I think that's what can bring on writer's block is just, yeah, I mean, that, you know, I, I run into that and with, mm-hmm. you know, when I, I, when I don't, you know, I, I have to give myself deadlines or, you know, yes. make them up because otherwise I always remember what, uh, Nadia Boulanger, the, the composition teacher had said that all great art is created within chains. Right. <laughs> yes, that's really true. Yes, exactly. And, um, yeah, sometimes those, you know, those chains can strangle us, but right. But and it's all but, about finding that balance between, you know, handy um, boundaries and strangulation with the chains you've created on your work. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I think so, too. I mean, um, you, you, if you, you do need some kind of restriction and, and if you're creating that yourself, then that's fine. You know, you, right. you just you do need that to a degree. But uh, yeah, I think it's a completely different part of the brain. Um, I ultimately find it a lot more satisfying um, to write fiction, mm-hmm. um, you know, but it's also a lot more difficult. It's like the best and the worst thing. Like if I don't have an idea and if I, if I'm not working on something and if I'm not writing, I actually get very depressed. Me I don't too. know if you feel that way. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm awful. Yeah. It's just kind of, I just, it's just, it's like a need. It's almost a physiological need to, to be telling the story, but in the telling of that story, you could be, it could is some of the worst torture ever. And it's some of the most, you know, just like, oh, my God, I I am a fraud. I'm terrible. I, I'm the worst writer of all time. I, all those things run through my head. Yeah. But all of it is better than not being able, not writing at all, you know? Absolutely. So. I mean, I, I have a framed picture of Leonard Cohen buying Cheetos up, up on my wall. And one <laughs> thing he had said that I love about writing was I write so I can refill my self-respect. Oh, God, that's great. I yeah. want to write that down. That's such a good quote. Yeah, that's really true. It is. It is true. It's it is. It's the source of self-respect. That's exactly what it is. You yeah. know, it's it's who you are. It's part of your identity. It's very, it's hard to explain to somebody, you know, who's not a writer how important it is, you know, but it yeah. just is. It it it, yeah. it it just becomes like breathing. Yeah, it really does. It it really really yeah. does. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it, one of the questions that Katie actually had, and we, mm-hmm. she and I have been talking about it, you know, she's a sixth grade teacher, and mm-hmm. she asked, what do, you, what would you tell kids about writing? Mm, God, that's good. Yeah, I, wow. I, I just, I told her that it's hard, and it's okay yeah. that it's hard. Yes, yes, exactly. It's like there, you know, there's that quote, I, I hate writing, but I love having written, but it's not even, I mean, that's true to a degree, but it is, it, yeah, I think that's, that's it. It's hard, but it's, it's fulfilling, you know, it's fulfilling in a way that, that a lot of things aren't. It's a challenge to yourself, you know, rising up to that challenge, even though you don't necessarily, I mean, I, I think I. I can count on probably one hand the number of good writing days I've had in the last five years. So, mm-hmm. you know, I hear you. But I, I remember, you. I remember those days. They were wonderful. Yes, exactly. The, when you have a good writing day, there's just no feeling like it. You know? Yeah, definitely. When she first asked me that question, I said about you know, yeah, it's hard. I, I thought of what Warren Beatty said about directing, which, what? which is. It's like vomiting. I hate to do it, but I feel better afterwards. Oh, yes, that's true, too. <laughs> it is true. I don't I, mean, like, I don't really want to tell sixth graders that. But you know. No, but like I feel like the end of writing a book, I always feel that way. Like there's there are always a couple of days when I'm when I'm putting in sort of all nighters, you know, and yeah. which is which I'm really getting too old for, for sure. Um, but I end up doing that. And um, and it's just torture um to the point of where i'm like hearing voices in my head Mm -hmm. but then when i finish and i 
when I write, you know, when I write that last sentence, it's one of the best feelings that there ever are. And it is very akin to having just finished throwing up. <laughs> it's, a, it's true. It's, a, it's, a, it's that exorcism thing, minus Max yes! von Sydow, right? Exactly. That's that friggin' story is out of my system. Finally, I got it out. You well, know, well, that, that was actually a question I had, not about Warren Beatty and vomiting, but um, <laughs> how do you know when you're done? Oh, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I always, with a work of, of crime fiction, you know, there, there's an ending that you sort of have in your mind at the beginning, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it's not really something that you can just keep kind of going on and, oh, I wonder what happens to them next year. Here, you know, there's a, there's a natural intuitive end to it. And, and, and you've got that end sort of in your head. Um, you know, that said, the pacing is usually off for me, at least in the first draft. And then in the second draft, I, I go back over it. And I'm able to, you know, sort of hone it and, and, and get the pacing going. But as far as like knowing when I'm done, that's never been a problem for me. It's always been just sort of intuitive. Okay, that's it. You know, that's, that's the thing that I wanted to say, you know, um, that's what I wanted to end. Are we going to get a series with Pearl? Oh, that's what my editor said, too. I'd love to come back to Pearl. Okay. Um, I would absolutely love to. I've thought of either putting her in a novella or doing a prequel or something like that. But, yes, I I think that um, I just – I might do a prequel because I, I almost don't want anything bad to happen to Pearl <laughs> anymore. Yeah, I, I think she should just live happily ever after with Paul. But yeah, we'll she, see. she's been through a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she has. <laughs> so so we're, we're actually heading into the final questions. So, Great. Okay. Um, what haven't you tackled creatively that you'd like to try? Um, I'd like to write a song. <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, no, I'd be terrible at it. I just, I admire, um, I admire poets and lyricists more than anybody, and I have more envy of them than anybody because I love reading good poetry yeah. and hearing good song lyrics. I would just love to be able to do that, but I stand in awe. Um, but as far as what I'd like to do, I used to write plays when I was in college, and I loved it. Okay. Um, I wrote one. Um, uh, I did write a pilot screenplay with Megan, Megan Abbott, for because our uh, that Normandy Gold was option for a while, and okay. we wrote a pilot together, and that was really fun, too. So I think it would be really fun to write a screenplay, you know, like a feature-length screenplay. I don't know how good I'd necessarily be at it, but I do think I'd like it because, again, I like that constriction, you know, yeah. that it has to be a certain amount of pages and, and it's got to, <clears throat> you have to tell your story in, you know, what 90 to 120 pages of, you know, mostly there's a lot of dialogue and, you know, very, very uh, leanly described action and you have to show rather than tell. So all of that appeals to me. Yeah. So I, w I think I would like to try that. So what have you seen, read or heard recently that really just blew you away? Well, um, it's really cool that I get to talk about this now because I okay. read a book um, that uh, that's coming out in April. Um, I read an early uh, galley of it, and it blew me away. I loved it so much. It's called Heaven's a Lie, and it's by Wallace Strobe. And he, I don't know if you've heard of him, he is a terrific noir writer. He normally writes a series about a very badass woman named Chris Stone, um, who's great. But this is a standalone book, I think, or I don't know, could be the start of a series. But it's just a beautiful noir book with an, a wonderful main character um, named Joette Harper. And um, Joette, talk about likable characters. She's one of the most, she has such a big heart. She's so strong. And she's so tough and so smart. And boy, does she get into trouble in this book. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's just, it's propulsive. I can't, it's just so good. Um, one of the interesting things that I really loved about it, too, is that Joette is um, an adult, a child of it. Her mother um, had a stroke. And so she's dealing with all sorts of caregiving issues that you really don't see too much in fiction you know although it's very very common and it's really well told and very believable um and very moving so uh and that's just a small part of it then then there's then there's joette kicking ass and getting her ass kicked and running and so, oh it's so good <laughs> so it's heaven's a lie by heaven's a lie by wallace strobe yeah, it's, it's wonderful out in yeah. april 
Out in April, yes. All right. I'll, I will add yeah. that to my list. Um, so where can people uh, find you, connect with you, say hi, whatever? Okay. Well, I have a website um, that's it's mm-hmm. almost always out, uh, not up to date, but it is up to date. It now, is newly updated. I saw that. Newly, I, 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 yes. I, finally. <laughs> It doesn't say coming soon. Never look back. So right, yay! Yeah. Yes, and you were um, you were doing all these book, bookstore appearances in the middle of the pandemic. Yes. <laughs> you're like the bravest woman the, ever. Yes. She wow. Was, she was out there in her hazmat suit. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no, so it's alisongalen.com. A l i s o n g a y l i n dot com. Um, I'm also on Twitter, Allison Galen, and I'm on Instagram. Um, but my Instagram is just like sort of pictures of my my dog and stuff. It's not really very much about writing. But there is nothing my house, wrong my with dog. Instagram dog pictures. That is yes. pretty much all mine is. You know that. So. that that's what I like to do. Exactly. Just my dog and, you know, nice, nice snowy day pictures and things like that. But that's Allison.Galen. And then I'm also on um, Facebook. I have an author page and then I also have a regular Facebook page. Okay. So, yeah. So thank you for doing this. And, you know, you've been, I mean, <laughs> we've, I mean, sort of been connected since the, you know, MySpace days. So you've been extremely generous with your time with me over oh, these years. So it's been a pleasure. I just admire your talent so much. Oh, so well, thank you. Well, thank yeah. you. It and yeah, clearly I don't know how to conclude these things. So we're just I'm just <laughs> going to cut these things off and then like because now well, that you've fade com- to black. <laughs> yeah, now that you've complimented me, I don't know what to say. I'm like, oh. <laughs> well, definitely include it because it's true. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I kind of flubbed that ending, but um, I get a second chance right now. So, like I was trying to say, I just want to say thanks to Allison for taking the time to chat with me, for all of her friendship and support over the years, and, and for all of her amazing writing and all of her amazing stories and work. And I know I can't wait to read The Collective when it comes out in November, so be sure to check that out when it does. Uh, you can connect with Allison at her perpetually updated website, alisongalen.com, on Twitter at Allison Galen, and on Facebook and Instagram both at Allison.Galen. And then uh, be sure to check out more of Geiger von Muller's work, including First Revisit from Ruby Red Run, which I think I got right this time. On his, you can check his work out at his Bandcamp page, geigervon.bandcamp.com. That's G-E-I-G-E-R-V-O-N.bandcamp.com. And uh, so, oh yes, wait, wait, yeah. If you want to say hi, sh- uh, shout, scream, swear, whatever at me, my email is tww at parentheticalrecluse.com. And when there are more older episodes of this show, you can listen at parentheticalrecluse.com slash pod. So until next time, I hope you enjoyed and uh, thanks for listening.